Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Golf Shot Podcast. I'm your host, Tommy Bagley. I have been away for a few weeks, uh, so my apologies. I don't want to belabor it too much because I'm already, uh, my receipts are already, uh, you know, kind of kicking me, coming back to, to, to curb me, I guess, uh, because I said, hey, I'm going to keep this a consistent thing. And I was really trying to keep it up, but just life, work gets in the way sometimes. Um, it's just been a busy few weeks for me. Tough to just squeeze in the podcast. And to be honest, like originally there wasn't a ton of new news to talk about, but obviously the last few weeks, there's been tons of crazy news in the golf world. So I definitely thought it would be a good opportunity to jump back on because two of the biggest stories of the year in the golf world really dropped on the last couple of weeks. So I'm just going to want to hit on that. Um, I've heard, you know, I've been reading a lot of media about them. Well, obviously, I think you know the subjects I'm talking about. We'll dive into it in just a second. But uh, we're back. Going to go full steam ahead. I'm not sure what the next couple weeks will hold as far as with the holidays and everything. But I certainly will be back at least in early January, if not before that. Uh, but let's just get into it and, and dive right in. Okay, so... Two giant stories of the week were obviously John Rahm signing with Liv and the USGA announcing a full rollback back of the golf ball uh, after the long um, comment period. Uh, you know, the, as most people know, in the spring, the USGA announced their plan to bifurcate the golf ball with this extended commentary period. And now that the commentary period has ended, the USGA and the RNA have decided that the best course of action from all the people they talked to and the stakeholders and all the opinions and feedback that they they gathered was actually that they should roll back the golf ball um, for everybody in the game, including amateur players, including everyday players. Uh, this was obviously met with a you know just fur just fervor of uh, of opinions and criticism and support um, from around the golf world. Um, it's funny, I was talking to my roommate yesterday, and I kind of just jokingly, he doesn't really follow golf at all, and I was like, what do you feel about the golf ball rollback? And he was like, I don't even know what you're saying right now, like, what does that mean? So maybe not the biggest story in the world right now, there's a lot going on in the world that's probably a little bit more important than the golf ball rollback, uh, but certainly huge news in the golf world. Um, I was pretty surprised, I mean, I think a lot of people in the know, I talked to my dad and he said, yeah, he, and my dad is much more in the know and has, you know, works closely with uh, the Massachusetts uh, Mass Golf, formerly the Massachusetts Golf Association. And he had they had kind of heard uh, feelers that this was kind of the route that the, the USGA and RNA were thinking about going. Um, the first thing I thought about was that I was really pleased. I'm somebody who definitely supports a full rollback. And I, you know, one of the problems I thought with the bifurcation model was that I think it, I think what's going, um, it has been discussed, but isn't discussed as much as other items is that there are just so many people in the game of golf who are not professional golfers that hit the golf ball a really long way. And so that is the college game, the, like the high level amateur game. Um, as somebody who's like followed very closely, like my own state's championships opens and the amateurs, all those guys hit it a mile. And to me, that is that is really also part of the problem. It wasn't just that the professional golfers were pl- hitting it too far. 
but that, that if you're a local golf association, which is such a big feeder for the game and really part of the really part of the grow the game, to quote unquote, um, you know, element to the game, uh, that was such a big problem. I mean, all these courses where I grew up in the Northeast, a, a lot of the older courses um, from the teens and twenties you just see these guys like rip it up, you know, they just hit it so far and all these golf courses are in an arms race to lengthen the golf course. Uh, you could say they don't need to do that. Why do they spend, you know, the money? It's just an ego thing with the members. And that's true. Like members always don't want to see the golf course, you know, get just, you know, eaten up by the best players. But it's just, I think the problem just really extends beyond the pro game and this is just such a long time coming. I mean, this is a debate that's really been going on for 30 years, and the USGA has quite infamously not really made, um, has not really touched it until very recently. And I, I honestly, thinking back from a few years ago, I, it's it's amazing we're here because this was so far off and just such like a kind of a pipe dream for people that really cared about the game and had, had felt like it had is changing too dramatically. Um, and so I do think it's a good thing. I think, you know, I'm somebody who went to urban planning school and everybody, you know, when I said I was a golfer, I was met with lots of skepticism because all my urban planning colleagues, for the most part, don't have any respect for the game of golf, don't really like golf courses as uses of land for land use purposes, as far as like valuable land, which could be um, much more public, even if it's a public golf course, people who, you know, don't feel like a public golf course is necessarily a venue for people to, you know, for the general public. Um, while I do feel like public golf courses are a public benefit, I do feel like they could be more of a public benefit if they, uh, you know, closed off areas for walking trails and, and didn't open the golf course seven days a week. That's a different kind of discussion, but I would, <laughs> I've been kind of like hot to trot on that uh, in my own thinking for a while now. But, you know, my planning colleagues and a lot of them are in roles where they will be in municipalities, they will be, you know, city planners, some in politics. And, you know, their view is that golf courses are a waste of space. And we spend so much time lengthening golf courses and expanding the footprint and it's not sustainable it's not sustainable from an environmental perspective but the resources the golf courses use the water you know the fertilizer whatever and it's just not sustainable with the growth of you know based you know population growth in the united states public golf courses and private golf courses you know take up a lot of valuable space i mean la has been famously um you know maligned by people like Malcolm Gladwell and others for this valuable real estate of golf courses being what could be public land, could be housing. And there's such a myopic view from so many of the pro tour players who are just trashing this and they just don't understand. They live in Florida, they live in Texas, they don't, everyone around them probably says that, you know, golf is doing so great. It's such, a, it's such a great place. Like they, they would never understand this. They're like people, there's people out there, a lot of people in, in this country that don't care about golf at all and would rather have golf courses go away. So the idea that you're just going to keep expanding them and expanding them is just totally out in step um, with what a lot of people would like to see. So at least sustaining the footprints and not getting into wars 
over lengthening golf courses and upset communities and upset neighbors. Like that to me is such a huge part of this. Um, and not to mention like the pro game, I think the pro game does have a problem with length. I think the pro game has gotten boring. I mean, I think a lot of people who are really into a sport, I think the people that are most into any sport kind of see the flaws in it the most. And like people will criticize, you know, modern NBA for the, the style of play or modern football for the style of play. I remember listening to some guys talk about the tennis game and they felt like modern tennis was too, you know, um, just like routine, like the routines were, the beats were too similar. It was like all baseline play, all just like an endurance test. And it's like, oh, well, as a casual fan, I don't really think that way. But when you're in the, when you're really engaged in a sport, like, like I am with golf. And I assume if you're listening to this, you are with golf, you know, that like the professional game is a driver wedge fest. And, you know, you may love the scoring. I mean, it's still compelling. It will always be compelling. But, like, there's a reason Augusta National lengthened the 13th hole and has lengthened the course just numerous times since the late 90s. They want to have certain shot values because that's what makes golf interesting. Seeing people hit long irons into par fours, seeing people have risk-reward shots on par fives and having to hit, like, awkward, like, three woods off a side hill lie as they now have to do sometimes on the 13th Augusta. I mean, it's just... How is that not more compelling than somebody hitting a, a nine iron into that green? I mean, I, honestly, the last few years before they lengthened the 13th hole, and, you know, I remember talking to my dad. It's like every year I got so excited for the Masters, but then I would always have to hedge it a little bit because you're like, yeah, I, I love it. It's the best thing ever. It like I have, like, withdrawal after it's over, and I'm just, like, had been mainlining uh masters.com coverage and like a three screens and and it's like literally like it's a traumatic thing when it ends because you're like oh my god i can't believe it's over i have to wait another year but i always had to hedge my excitement because i was like "Ah, i forget that i'm gonna have to watch these guys hit wedges into these par fives and it's gonna stink because you watch the old masters and you see them hitting like the one irons into 15 or the one irons into 13 and you're just like, wow, this is so cool. This is so cool. It is not the same when they hit wedges. Okay. So that was my rant on that. <laughs> um, and let me just also say that I just couldn't agree more with what I've been hearing from Mike Wom and the USGA. I mean, it's honestly amazing to hear them um, talk this way because I just, I just agree with, I agree with, I agree. I feel like I almost said disagree. I agree with everything that they've been saying. And like literally, I I just like wish that I could articulate exactly my thoughts about this. And I hear Mark, Mike Wom talk and the other um, officials from the USGA and I'm just like, wow, this is, I. you are such the right guy for this job. I was pretty happy when Mike Wom did get the the um, job as executive director of the USGA, but I didn't even think that this was something on his radar and he didn't even, I don't really remember him highlighting it. The USGA definitely needed leadership. They needed somebody who was a good communicator. He obviously is a, is a really great communicator. The media kind of eats him up. Uh, he's got that kind of salesman um, pitch to him. He needed somebody, He they needed a figure that could bridge this gap between the USGA 
and the pro pro players after that relationship have become uh, increasingly fraught <laughs> over the last you know years before um, before he came in, and it's just been remarkable that he's that he's got this done and that they're so um, that they feel so confident in what they're doing and that they feel very confident moving forward without the full support of the PGA Tour. And the P and I think he is such a contrast to Jay Monahan's leadership at the PGA Tour in every way. Uh, the PGA Tour, obviously, in their just like, you know, like weak stances on everything, was against this. Obviously, the PGA Tour has its own internal issues that they're probably more worried about. So this is just probably more of a nuisance for them. And so, if the players are not going to support this, the tour is not going to. The, the tour has literally zero like leg to stand on on anything at the moment so like they're not going to go against them and be like oh well we support the usga in this um i i i'm waiting for these other organizations to come around to this um like the pga of america who's been like nervous like oh this is going to hurt the game um i'm just really happy that a lot of stakeholders out there a lot of the people that i um you know follow on twitter and like have a lot of respect for and and whatnot like no laying up in the fried egg obviously they're very gung-ho and very open about their opinions about how rolling back the ball is good for golf i think unfortunately with that this opinion becomes like oh it's like this like highbrow woke twitter golf twitter thing and and some people like feel like this is not for the every the everyday man a golfer um, I haven't really followed a lot of the barstool golf stuff. I think there's my sense is that they don't understand this either. Um, which is, you know, I, they are not in support of the rollback and I don't know. I mean, they, they have their lane. That's their thing. No laying up is, has this very unique relationship with a manufacturer. Barstool has its own relationship with a manu golf manufacturer so i don't know what that relationship is like if it's influenced by that at all i haven't listened to any of their stuff really but i just see these little things on twitter i'm just you know and i hate they have such a huge audience that i hate that 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 if they are painting it the rollback in a bad light that it's being spread to so many people that honestly if they didn't know about this they would not never they would never even basically know that it was happening i mean the average golfer is just not should not be concerned with like a minor rollback in their driving distance. There's a there's a rollback in my driving distance every other drive I hit because I don't hit it that well, and it's you know I like kind of pop it up to the right a little bit. I don't hit it like squarely every time, and the driver's already you know incredibly forgiving. If it was me, we would be looking at a driver rollback as well. Um, and the USGA has kept that open, which is really kind of interesting and makes me optimistic. And like, this is such a small, uh, rollback when it all said and done, like even the pros right now, they're not going to all of a sudden having to be hitting it, you know, back into like 1998 distances or anything. And, and the way the USGA has painted this is that this is like a, a managing thing. It's like, kind of like it's like winding it back a little bit because everything always accelerates forward. We know the players will get stronger. Swing speeds will increase. So they're just trying to like 
put like a slight like block in this levy of just like increasing distance and because they have to do something they really really do and people just don't understand the threat to the game of golf that increasing distance poses and i just really think that this will make the game more enjoyable for, for so many people i think people are looking past that as Mike Wan says, like if you lost three yards of distance or five yards of distance, we'll just move up your tees five yards. Just play it closer. And people will just never know the difference. Like They won't see a difference, and it will be okay. This is not a dramatic thing. It will be okay. The thing that I am sympathetic for is that this is a very different... It's an adjustment to everybody's thinking. Because in other sports, like baseball, at least professional baseball, you never have to think about the possibilities of what, like, the best bat in the world would do. Like, if you were allowed metal bats, if metal bat technology kept, like, was moving, you know, if, if, if metal bats were in professional baseball, the technology for metal bats, I'm sure, would be crazy good at this point. I'm, I'm sure manufacturers of metal bats have made bats really, really good at the college level and, the, you know, the minor league, the minor or like kid level. But I'm sure the incentive isn't quite there to make the metal bats as good as they can be as it is in golf because the professional game, they do always play the best technology. And so this whole market is driven on the best technology and it, and that's what drives the recreational game and obviously golf is unique in that kind of the, the recreational game is such a big part of it compared to so many other sports people don't go around playing uh baseball you know in their 40s and 50s and they don't go around playing football in their 40s and 50s and 60s as like you know a recreational hobby so this, the game of golf is so intertwined the professional game and the amateur game is so intertwined in that way pretty uniquely maybe that in tennis but so moving backwards is like kind of a weird it's a a weird thing to process and i think it is kind of the instinct is to reject that to reject this idea that something will make things quote unquote harder for you and it it's a total reversal of everything that golf marketing has really about been about for basically ever We've had few, you know, a few adjustment, you know, um, rules adjustments like to grooves in the in the 80s and the grooves in like the 2000s. Obviously, there was the long putter ban and little things like that, but it never felt like that was affecting that many people, uh, especially with the putters. So there have been these restrictions on the game before. And there have been like adjustments to the ball before. I, I know there was like the two ball system um, with like the British Open in the 70s where people would use a smaller ball and they put the kibosh on that. Uh, there's been like the side saddle or the like uh, croquet putting, which they banned, um, you know, back in the Sam Snead era. But, you know, those were like techniques and not everybody was doing it. So a golf ball rollback across the board is definitely a the most drastic step that I know of the governing bodies in golf taking. And it is weird after 
decades and decades of everything moving forward and you getting the new driver, you getting new clubs to hit it further, to hit it better, to make better contact for anything to all of a sudden say, hold up, you will now go in the reverse direction, despite the fact, who knows, it may help your game. Maybe you're wild with modern equipment and a, and a reduced uh, distance golf ball would keep you more in play. Nobody seems to care about that a whole lot. We're in, we're certainly in a, an era where, where further is always better. Something macho about that. I think that's kind of always been a mentality around the game and this kind of a competitive thing with people who play the game. Maybe it's a guy thing. I'm almost certain it is in some respect. Um, so this idea is tough. I, I, that's the thing that I do get that after years and years of just moving forward and getting better, this idea that you may get quote unquote worse because you're getting shorter is like a different difficult thing to get your mind around. It's kind of like this adjustment to thinking. It honestly kind of reminds me of this, this book I read in planning school called the high cost of free parking. And this book is pretty famous in the planning world, but it's basically argues that our system of free parking in the United States, mostly and parking minimums that are required for basically all types of businesses from apartment buildings to malls, to drive-ins, to coffee shops, whatever. Everybody's like, everybody complains about parking. Oh, there's never enough parking. I can never find a parking space, whatever. And the author of the book, who's a planning professor from UCLA, is arguing that hey, we're, we're paying for all this free parking in ways that we never really think about. The parking spots that you that we crave for build, you know, all these requirements like McDonald's comes into a town and they have to build X amount of parking spots. McDonald's is required by law to do that from the town and like the parking minimums that the town has or community or whoever setting, you know, the zoning laws. But that's not a market condition. They're just forced to do that. That increases the cost of the building, building the McDonald's. So it thus increases the cost of the items on the menu. If an apartment building is forced to build parking, then they don't necessarily want the market doesn't support. They're they're adding to the cost of construction. They're adding to the ultimately being passed down to con the consumer. This is like a total shift from our normal mentality that there's never enough parking, I can't find parking. If we had to pay for parking, that's annoying, it's too expensive. But in so many ways, we're, we're paying for excess parking, we're paying for all this land use to be eaten up by parking when it could make our housing costs lower. It could make you know the cost of living lower if we didn't have so much parking, if we didn't allow for that. Some of you are gonna think that this is what on earth is this guy talking about? This is crazy. Um, you're gonna say, wow, this guy's like super liberal planning guy. But uh, no, I swear, it's a really interesting book. It's a really interesting um, philosophy. And I think it's one of those things that really reshapes the way you think of it, think of things. And I think it's what's needed in this golf ball debate as well. People need to really reorient their, reorient their thinking away from, oh, a rollback would hurt my game and make me worse to being like, well, maybe it will help your game. Maybe it will make the cost of playing golf lower if we don't have to spend so much expanding golf courses for, you know, for just because we need to protect 
against the longest players or whatnot. Okay. I'm like out of breath here. I don't have the stamina for rent renting. <laughs> uh, ranting on a podcast. I guess I got to talk to like Ryan Rosillo about his like breathing routine and how he does solo podcasting. Um, so the other big story we got to hit this week is John Rahm going to live. And obviously this was a bomb, big bombshell of an announcement. Definitely John Rahm kind of, um, there's been a lot of like live signings that we've ushered in. Like, this is the biggest one. This is the most important. First it was Phil then it was DJ. DJ was a huge one because it felt like, whoa, he's like PGA Tour staple. Um, then it was Cam Smith because after Cam Smith was coming off right right off winning the Open Championship at St. Andrews. But now we're at John Rahm. John Rahm does feel a little bit different because John Rahm is arguably the best player in the world. He is definitely one of the top three players in the world. Is the reigning Masters champion. Uh, had a huge year on the PGA Tour in 2023. Um, but with so much live news over the last couple of years, it just doesn't hit the same, and it's not that same kind of shock as some of those other guys were. Um, I think my my initial reaction, and I've seen this floated around uh, with some other people and some of the reporting, was like, okay, I can kind of see this, based on one of the, some of the things that John Rahm has said this year. John Rahm is somebody who's obviously still very close to Phil Mickelson. He's still very close to Sergio Garcia. He's kind of uh, lamented the fact that those guys have been kind of blackballed in a lot of ways from the Ryder Cup, and just like they're just treated pretty uh, shittily by the media um, throughout this whole live thing. And then the other thing I obviously thought about was the way that John Rahm has kind of said that he doesn't feel, in so many words, he's kind of implied that he doesn't feel like he is as important a player in these PGA Tour discussions as most notably Rory McIlroy. And, you know, there was like the, there were some comments. And then I think at the Ryder Cup, you know, the Ryder Cup press conference, all the questions were geared at Rory, and Rory's like the guy, Rory's the number one. And throughout this whole PGA Tour live saga, Rory has been the guy for the PGA Tour, seemingly making, or the player with the most power, making the biggest decisions. And you did kind of feel that Ron was like slided by this Rory-focused narrative, Rory-focused everything in golf the golf world the pga tours mind in the golf media's mind and so that's why it did kind of be like okay i could see this here's somebody who's frustrated probably frustrated with the direction of the pga tour doesn't feel like he has as big a voice as he would like and the other thing is just the uncertainty around what the future holds there there was an agreement in June, we heard that the Live and the PGA Tour were partnering, and then we haven't heard really anything since, except that the PGA Tour is building this relationship with all these different, you know, um, investment groups, a lot of sports groups involved in, you know, to kind of bolster the tour or help support the tour, and it's just a really confusing situation at the moment. Like, is Live 
Are they doing that to try to get out of making an agreement with Liv? Is this something that Liv has, or they, you know, the Saudi fund has asked them to do? But the ROM signing definitely feels like um, the Saudis saying the PJ Tour isn't acting in good faith in whatever negotiation they're, they're doing. At least that's the way it seems. And they're like, well, we will continue to sign guys and we will continue to build this league. And who knows how long this will be drawn out. And if you're John Rahm, like, this is a great opportunity to take the money. I think a lot of us have kind of flipped. I mean, I don't know. I no longer look at Liv as a super evil league with, like, super evil intentions. As much as I did in the beginning where I was pretty, pretty anti the whole thing, anti the people behind it. I think I come to a realization that, and, you know, I think maybe this was a, I think the treatment of Liv in the beginning may have been a little unfair just because we are casting all these questions about Saudi and human rights violations, which are all true, but in other sports and other realms, they are, they are involved. They're involved in the English Premier League. They were very involved in F1. And they don't, they don't get the same kind of pushback as we had in the golf world. But that was then supported by the PGA Tour, who who was like fanning those flames. It was like, yeah, these guys are bad. They do bad things. We can't, you can't play for them. That's such a, you know, it's such a bad thing for you as a player to do. It's a bad thing for anyone to do to be involved in this. And I really think that 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 uh, mentality has really shifted. In a lot of people's minds and my myself included and so i really think that john rom is just seeing this live opportunity as hey there's probably some solution to this coming down the, lo- the road if they're gonna offer me all this money why not take it why not go there he's got all these majors ex- exemptions right now he's still top he's top five in the world so he's not leaving the top 50 anytime. He has the lifetime master's exemption, 10 years US Open, and he's got the five years from the masters for everything else. So he's in the majors, which obviously are really important to him. So is this gonna be five years? Like if he plays the if he gets to play the majors for five years, and maybe even get back on the PGA tour, depending on what happens sooner. I mean, I I totally understand it. I totally understand it from his part. And I think where this leaves us is that the PJ Tour desperately needs to open back up playing opportunities to the live players. It seems like the only solution that they or the only path forward they have. And it's hard not to think it's hard not to just Monday morning quarterback this whole thing because it didn't feel like this was inevitably where we were going to go is that the PJ tour couldn't win this fight. But I think it's still fair to say that they've really botched this entire thing and that Jay Monahan has really shown no capacity to understand how to lead in this situation, understand that the tour is a fragile entity and that the status quo was getting blown up. He just seemed to really just 
dig his heels in, like put his hand head in the sand and be like, no, 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 no. Whenever anything different came up that was going to adjust the kind of really kind of rolling at the time cash cow that the PGA Tour was for a few years before this whole thing, he just wouldn't, just couldn't welcome it. I think the PGA Tour, you know, at when at its height back in like 2019, 2018, before all this live stuff, they had kind of won they had kind of won the whole debate in professional golf if if winning it or there was a debate like they had hollowed out the the old european tour a tour that used to pretty compete pretty you know the, a lot of the top europeans played more golf on the pga tour and they didn't all live in florida and they played full european tour schedules they definitely played pga tour schedules but guys like lee westwood and martin keimer when Martin Keimer was one of the best players in the world. And Luke Donald, I mean, they played a lot of golf in Europe. Um, and it, so the PGA Tour felt like they they had moved everybody to America to their tour and all the best events were PGA Tour events, all the highest purses. And then even things when like the match came around, like the first match between Tiger and Phil, that was not something involving the PGA Tour. And then the PGA Tour, like, somehow got involved. I know, like, this is a big Phil Mickelson, like, complaint, is that they had to be, like, kind of cut in the fold and had to, you know, get into the, the financial benefit of such a thing. And I think it just, they just felt like they were the ones controlling all the pieces in men's professional golf and nothing could happen without them. They were too important. They were too powerful. And it's all coming down like a house of cards. Recent news reports is that the PGA Tour is telling sponsors that they really need help, that they're like hemorrhaging money with these big purse increases to try to compete with Liv. And it just, wow, this has really just become such a crazy, uh, honestly depressing um, turn of events for the tour. Um, I wonder what people like Dean Beeman are thinking, the tour that he built into such a behemoth and Tim Fincham, uh, who I don't really think did a whole lot besides the ride, the, you know, the tale of Tiger Woods and the huge expansion around pro golf that kind of followed uh, Tiger and the Tiger kind of mania, the early 2000s. Um, but really, so back to the point here is that the PGA Tour, if they were smart at all, they would open up playing opportunities to the live guys and try to create an arrangement where live can exist as kind of a um, congruous thing that a lot of top players are involved in and they will just play it throughout the year kind of like the split schedules of the old European tour and PGA tour players that a lot of European players did. And I don't think we're in any position where they can punish those guys. I don't think Liv would really want that to happen or the Saudis uh, would really want the PGA tour or really allow the PGA tour to punish anybody who went to live because obviously they're in a very powerful position. If this was to happen, it would basically be like the PGA tour is kind of waving the white flag a little bit and like he's forced to bring them into the fold if they haven't already. Cause they basically already did that in June. But 
maybe they can have maybe they can get the Saudi the Saudis to um fund something to help the PGA tour with the guys that did stay who did not go to live and supported the tour and didn't get compensated. Maybe that sounds crazy. Maybe that won't happen. I know Andy Johnson on his podcast said like um sometimes you know you make a bad investment. You don't take or you you know you didn't invest in something you should have and that's how the players on the PGA tour should feel. But I mean at the end of the day the leadership at the PGA Tour totally is totally blindsiding those guys in a lot of ways. And they probably told them a lot, made a lot of promises to people who stayed on the PGA Tour who will never forgive them for for what happened in June when they made the announcement or will not forgive them if they do move forward in some type of, of partnership. Um, I think that's definitely a sign that Jay Monahan should go. At the very least, they need somebody new who doesn't that doesn't carry all this baggage from these last few years and all the misdirections and and lying and uh, lack of communication that's come from the tour. Um, but yeah, I think I think I really do see a world where the live circuit is this kind of bonus FA Cup, kind of what we always dreamed of from like the world golf championships, uh, definitely not exactly what we dreamed of. Cause I still think the live from a competitive standpoint and everything is like, leaves a lot to be desired. But if there were weeks throughout the year where they had live events where the best players played, and then they would play also play a normal PGA tour schedule. I think that's where we're going. And I think it kind of makes sense at this point. Uh, I really do. I mean, maybe that maybe live, isn't for the long haul. Like maybe it's a short-lived thing. I mean, players used to play things like Shell's Wonderful World of Golf just because of the purses. They were just, you know, exhibition, extra ex- exhibitions for TV. And they got paid a lot of money to play in them. Um, those were two players and these would be a lot more. But, you know, Liv would be incentivized if they had the pick of the litter to have all the players and they would probably dump a lot of the baggage that they currently have, like the Cameron Tringales and Graham McDowell's that are hanging around and getting paychecks for God knows what reason. Um, and yeah, I could see that relationship really emerging. Um, I guess the last thing to hit on and I'm going way long and I kind of need to, to head out soon. So I got to wrap this up is the mules on the PGA tour have been taking a beating the last week on Twitter. There was this letter released from um, their elite, like a bunch of players signed on uh, who are just been being dragged. Uh, I can't even think of like who was on that letter, but anyhow, a law firm representing the quote unquote average player, quote unquote mules of the PGA tour saying the tour has not been transparent that they're getting left behind, they're not in the decision-making process, and things are being made. This is a, a tour-run organization and all these accusations against them. Um, yeah, they're getting... Everybody's just tearing them apart, saying that they're the problem. They're all this dead weight on the tour. They're just, you know, part of this really generous um, system that really rewards a lot of guys down in the bottom really protects them from losing cards and and whatnot. And I do agree with that. And I certainly agreed with it, like, for most of the 
the time I've been watching the PGA Tour, the PGA Tour has always had these guys that seemed incredibly entitled, that don't offer a lot as far as the the markability of the tour or the you know the revenue of the of the tour as this as this marketing and entertainment product. Um, but I do think it's fair for them to bring these criticisms to the t- tour. I mean, the legal action. You know, who knows? Maybe this was necessary. They certainly there's been a lot of guys shouting, and they seemingly haven't gotten very far so far. Um, so maybe a, a legal angle was the best move forward for them. Um, but I don't. I guess I I'm sympathetic towards them because they did join a tour with certain expectations and certain trust of the leadership in place. That I mean. I'm sure if anybody was like reading the PGA Tour guidelines or regula- regulations or rules or whatever, I'm sure so many things are being broken by the leadership of the tour these days and decisions are just being made without the proper channels and out the communication. Um, I think something that has been like really underreported from the get-go is that the PGA Tour is a player-run organization but the the head of the PGA Tour, like the the board that votes on these things, like, like Jimmy Dunn and those guys, they have the power. And there's like one one or two players on that board. The players they can though that board operates the tour. They can vote so many for for the whole future of the tour, as they did with the agreement with Lib, without input from majority of the players. There's nothing that says the players have to agree to anything. Really, they do not need. The full support of the of, of the the players on the tour, and I think this has been, and everybody's you know like lambasting them for going like oh you how how can you do this as a player run organization but it's like yeah well it was never set up this way even Dean Be- you know Dean Beeman Dean Be- well, I can't say his name right now he set it up this way he was a former player, um so a really weird arrangement at the tour that actually doesn't allow the players to really have like a full say, but the players have had, I think Jay Monahan in the last, as, as far as his um, tenure has obviously really like folded to whatever the tour players wanted in, in so many directions that have been really annoying, even like just, just giving into everything they they wanted. Um, and you know, the mule, I think a lot of people on Twitter are like the mules have really benefited from this whole arrangement and it's, it's always been a yes to everything they wanted and all the different kind of crazy ways that those players can keep their tour cards once they have them and all the crazy exemptions. And if you listen to the shock and start, you'll know of all the like JJ Henry, like 300 cuts made exemptions into, into tournaments and things like that. Um, but I just, I, you know, I do, I am getting sidetracked the end of the day. The mules I have sympathy for. They were operating under certain assumptions. They are members of this tour. They should be fighting for their for themselves, their own rights, their livelihoods. Why, if you were them, would you just sit back and let this happen to you? If it fundamentally like makes it that the tour just collapses. They should make sure that that isn't the end goal here. They should not just be like, well, if this thing, you know, we're, this thing may go down, but, and we're going to just drag it down too. Like if we, 
if there's no path forward, we're just going to make sure we get our money and run. They should be more a little bit smarter than that. And there is an element to that right now, I think, that is dangerous. And they do come across as kind of like the, this is going to be a crazy segue, but I uh, just finished reading this biography on, on George H.W. Bush. And when the Soviet Union was at the, the brink of collapsing, Gorbachev, the general secretary of the Soviet Union, was basically put under house arrest by a hard Communist Party liners who tried to take were taking back the government and what happened the soviet union collapsed it didn't work they were too extreme that's not the direction that people wanted they wanted the moder a moderate approach the extreme approach ended in collapse of the soviet union emergence of russia and all the independent states a little history um so the mules cannot be those hardliner party guys that drag it all down they have to they have to let a process emerge where the PGA Tour survives. So that ultimately is where they need to stop themselves. They cannot go that far. They cannot drag the whole thing down. But I do think they have a right to fight for them themselves, fight for their own rights on tour. They are important elements of the tour. The tour has always been about like a wide group of players and not just you know the stars. Like I think that all those things are like in, are are important they are some of the reasons we do love watching pga tour golf despite all these like random names you may see who seemingly don't deserve to make the millions that they do they deserve a voice that was kind of what the tour was founded on and so i see where they're coming from i don't think they need to be dragged any further than they already have they've been dragged pretty hard um so yeah i just wanted to get that out there um okay i whew, I'm like exhausted. That is really all I have for this week. I may be back next week to talk a little bit about the PNC and whatever other news kind of, uh, you know, kind of materializes from the John Rom, the rollback, PJ Tour future, whatever else happens. But yeah, uh, thanks for thanks for sticking with me. If you got through this giant rant, um, wow, thank you, thank you so much, thank you so much for listening. And I will talk to you next time. Thanks.